Hello, and welcome to BrightSpark. This is episode six. Thank you for being with us. I'm Matt Hastings, and as ever, I'm joined by one of my brilliant Innovate UK colleagues. This time, it's the Strategic Innovation Fund's commercial lead, Mr. Paul Paderuth. Hello, Matt. How are you? Thanks for having me here. Pleasure to be here on what is my first podcast. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you as well. And Paul, your focus is really on commercialization, how innovative ideas that can help drive down carbon emissions can become a commercial reality, and how networks can adopt a business-as-usual approach to innovation. Is that fair in a nutshell? Yeah, in a nutshell, that's exactly it. We, we are in a really privileged position in this team to affect what happens in the network innovation space. And where I see my role as, as head of commercial for the fund is being able to help the networks find those innovations that can really transform how they work mm -hmm. and bring them into their business as usual. But I think I also have a really key role to look at what the third parties, the ecosystem, the other stakeholders who are involved have to play in that, in that transition. Well, Paul, it's absolutely great to have you here to help us to explore this vital aspect of the innovation journey we are all on. Right, here is what's coming up in this packed episode. We need to foster and nurture the startups, the entrepreneurs, to bring on their tech solutions so that we can use them, develop them, and harness the power of their solutions. That's John McKiernan, Head of Innovation Pipeline at the Irish Utility ESB. Also with us is startup innovator and CEO of Electron, Jojo Hubbard. For me, the most exciting position at the moment is that integration of all the different flexibility service providers, renewable developers, like all these different technologies. Later, we'll also hear from Eric Appleton from the Energy Systems Catapult about their programme designed to help innovators to commercialise. What are the route to market partnerships that they're going to need? How does a value chain kind of work within the sector that they're looking at? and which are they going to be the segments that are going to be most interested in their proposition now. They need, they need to get traction now. So as you can see, this is going to be another cracking episode. I think just before we launch into it, it's worth taking a little bit of a step back and thinking about why we've got a commercialization function within the Strategic Innovation Fund, because it's one of the first commercialization functions to be embedded within any grant funding program within Innovate UK. So it's different and it's new. And really what we've tried to do here is address one of the fundamental challenges with innovation, not just network innovation, but more broadly. And that is how do we move from a bunch of research projects into product projects, which are developing new products and services which consumers and network users can use and are useful and valuable to them. So that's really what Paul's job is. Give us a bit of a flavour, Paul, of how you see this working strategically commercially wise. I think we need to think about our fund as a commercial fund. Mm -hmm. You may have heard the term impact investing. It's becoming more and more fashionable in the current marketplace. And it's about there being motives that are more than just financial return. And I think we can classify ourselves as an impact investor. We have a significant pot of money to support transformational innovation in our energy networks that is ultimately to benefit the environment through net zero and also the consumer through reduced 
bills and better service. I agree with that. I think, you know, we don't have shareholders in the same way that a venture capital firm or a private equity firm might have shareholders where they need to deliver a return on investment normally financial returns to those shareholders. But what we do have is consumers as our key shareholders. They are ultimately uh, who we're accountable to. And if the Strategic Innovation Fund can't return value to consumers, and that value can come in a variety of ways, right? We could deliver value both in terms of financial savings. We can deliver value in terms of new products and services that consumers can use to make their lives easier. And we can deliver value around things like carbon reductions and climate change. But ultimately, we are a consumer-driven and sponsored type of venture capital firm. And we like to do things a bit differently. That's right. And I think the portfolio of of value for the consumer is, is the approach we should take. We can return benefit, as you said, through a number of different metrics. But fundamentally, if they all contribute to uh, the benefit of the consumer, then it's it's an activity we should be focusing on following. And commercialization within the energy networks is often quite a dark science. You know, how do we ensure that after running an innovation project, and it could be for, say, three, four, five years, how do we ensure that ultimately that does get embedded as business as usual within the networks, do you think, Paul? That's a really great question. And, and I think we have to be honest with ourselves here that we can't ensure it. I think what we can do is make sure that we put in place the building blocks and we challenge the barriers that exist to that in practice. We need to be able to help innovation make a business case for why a network should bring it on board. But we also need to make sure that an innovation is deliverable. And a really key focus for me on the commercialization journey is being able to look at uh, an innovation and understand or help the project understand what are the limiting factors here for you to be able to deliver innovation at the scale that your customer will require. I think it's also worth touching on the fact that when we talk about innovation and network deployment, we're focusing on one or a handful of customers to a potential innovation. And a really important part of commercializing the Strategic Innovation Fund is about recognizing that this is a global market we're operating in. If we can help our best innovators commercialize their offering, it's not just UK networks who can benefit from it. And that's that's a really important aspect of what we're trying to deliver through the commercial side of the Strategic Innovation Fund. And there's a couple of other little angles to this, isn't there? I think one of the beauties of the Innovate UK partnership with Ofgem is that we can grease the wheels of commercialization by feeding the insights from innovation back into the regulator so they can look at where there are potential regulatory barriers that might be a blocker to helping some of those innovations be embedded as business as usual. And then similar, working very closely with the UK government around future policy that needs to adapt and change to enable these innovations to become business as usual. And ultimately, that's how we're going to deliver net zero is not with a bunch of projects. We're going to deliver net zero with a bunch of products and services. And that's why we've got Paul and the team on commercialization within the SIF. It's a really, really important part of our offer. And I think we have to show how non-dilutive funding can be used to crowd in private sector investment and create a market around network innovation. The funding we provide incentivizes innovation, but it also has to incentivize commercialization because that is where we create the value for the consumer. How cool would it be, Paul, if we generated the next Tesla just off the back of the Strategic Innovation Fund? That would be cool. That would be cool.
So let's get into the detail now of some of those really insightful chats that we held at the Energy Innovation Summit in Glasgow earlier this year. Bearing in mind we were doing this during the summit, you'll hear a bit of hubbub and background noise in these chats. My name is John McKiernan. I'm the Head of Innovation Pipeline at ESB, the Irish Power Utility. We are stood in one of the walkways of the SEC in Glasgow at the Energy Innovation Summit. What we're looking at right now is a mural that has been painted by some fantastically talented artists, which is a representation of the conversation we had yesterday in a session about the barriers to commercialisation. It touches on some of the key themes that came out of that discussion, an understanding of regulation, the resource requirement or the resource drain on small companies trying to get involved in network innovation, the importance of access to funding, and many other topics that are really important for companies that are trying to be part of a commercialisation journey. John, I guess this is a good point to ask you about some of these um, in particular, and, and I know it's an area that you have a lot of experience in, access to funding and its importance to innovation as part of the commercialisation journey. I'm loving it. Yeah, we're standing here looking at the it's a cartoon mural by the More Than Minutes guys. It's it's fantastic. And I love the bit where the people are sitting around designing a, a hang glider and the first guy on is jumping on the hang glider and his hang glider says risk. So that's a lovely one. So, you know, jump off a cliff with something we just designed two minutes ago. See how you get on. There's a little bit of risk there. We can see here, you know, resources, access. To, these are the challenges, right? And uh, the entire energy innovation ecosystem is, you know, represented in this it is, is mural. The key thing, I think, is to break down the barriers between small companies working with large companies. The large companies have the resources. They know all of the rules and regulations. They have specialists that, you know, in two minutes will tell what will take a startup months to try and figure out. And then the rules change again. So, you know, ask somebody who knows, I think, is the key point. And the larger companies, the, the distribution companies, the generation companies, they have those experts and, you know, provide that expertise to the startups, it, it costs us very little. And for the startups, you know, their opportunity is, okay, once they see the rules and regulations, they are the quickest to find a path through because they're the quick thinkers, the entrepreneurs, the navigators. For us, it's, you know, it is take that first jump off the cliff, you know, be, be in that hang glider. There's two people in the second one and they're getting a reward, that's even better. Uh, and, and, and the reward is, if you get a pilot project from these discussions with a large company, that, that's when the magic happens. You sign a pilot project, then you can tell people who want to raise, you're raising money from VCs or, or, or any other agency, say, I have a blue chip client that likes what I'm doing, we're doing a pilot. You can talk to them and they will validate that my thesis isn't a slide deck, it is reality. My business is just about to go further on this super hang gliding journey. <laughs> if you're wondering what we're looking at, we're going to put a link to this illustration on the show notes for this episode of BrightSpark. Now, John, just staying on the topic of risk, one of the real challenges that we hear when we speak to parties that are involved in network innovation is that innovators seem to take all the risk and networks don't. How do we change the dynamic there? Yeah, I, well, I think the, there's pressure on all parties, you know, um, the larger companies, the, the distribution companies, the generation companies have to hit net zero, you know, and they are looking for solutions. And they're, and I am one of them, I'm from ESB, you know, we, we, we are one of those companies. We're not technology developers. So we need to foster and nurture the startups, the entrepreneurs, to bring on their tech solutions so that we can use them, develop them, and harness the power of their solutions to hit our targets. So actually, the playing field is, is kind of leveling a little bit here. 
The big challenge for the larger companies is we can't do, you know, 5,000 deals a week. We have to cherry pick the really good ones and, and find those good ones. So it's, it's, it's down to the startups. If they think they've got a really good solution, they have to stick their head up, put their hand up saying, I can do this, right? And once they get the attention of, of the utilities, the utilities then say, okay, you know, we'll wrap our arms around this one and do it properly That's and bring really it to the system. really interesting. I think one of the observations we've made as part of the Strategic Innovation Fund is that there is a real need for more of a wraparound advisory service for these SMEs and, and micro companies. I think that touches on a lot of what you're saying there, that if we can help them be in a better position to understand the product, understand what solution they're solving, and understanding what the business case is for their customer, then we can help them go down that risk pendulum. Yeah, I fully agree. Look, it's, it's all about credi establishing credibility. A startup has zero brand. You know, we may have never heard of the person. You know, who's behind it? You know, their 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 credit, their history. Where do they come from? Have they straight out of college? Have they jumped from a large OEM and, and left a perfectly good, pensionable job somewhere because they so passionately believe in it? And have they got traction? Have they thought it through? Do they really understand the the, the challenges in the system? And if they could convince and sell that dream, if you like, to the people in the utility. There's a tipping point, and once the once the relevant experts, subject matter experts in the utilities, see that this is actually a serious proposition, they will grab it with both hands because they need it to hit their targets. Talking more about the flow of money, so thinking about um, the need for early stage capital, thinking about the need for networks and, and and the wider supply chain to need to need their piece of the pie. How do we make that work better? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's seed all the way to family and friends, seed, you know, series A, B, C, the VCs involved. And sometimes, you know, large utilities can invest as well and maybe acquire them even. So there's a number of like Innovate UK, Catapult, all of these, pro you know, they're there for a reason. Use them, you know, if, if you haven't, why not? You know, there are people there dying to find good opportunities to row in behind. We were participating in the Free Electrons program. Same idea. We're trying to find the best companies, the most worthy people who've put in enough thought and you know their, their intellectual capital into absolutely cracking a problem that we need to solve to hit net zero. And once we identify them, we, we absolutely wrap our arms on them. We, we, we are happy to... And, but there's a step, there's a cadence. You know, if Innovate UK have picked them, they, that, that's a little badge of honor, big badge of honor. You know, they've gone, gone through one of the larger programs uh, successfully, like Free Electric or something else. They've been selected, you know, they've passed a test. And every time you pass a test, you build more credibility and you start to build that brand. And one of the key advantages I would suggest as well for startups, whether they're raising money or trying to grow market share is, if you can append yourself to a, a, a power utility, you're halfway there because you can lean on their brand. So, you know, in the free electrons program, for example, like 80 million customers, you know, that's a lot of doors knocking if you're a startup. But if you get into the program, you've got a direct channel, you have sponsors, you have people who are not technology developers, they're not trying to reverse engineer your intellectual property. They actually want you to be the best. They want to get your product to market because it makes us look good. One of the things I'm really interested in is your experience over the years of working in networks. I'm interested firstly in what the journey's been like for commercialisers and how that's changed over time. And also, what do the networks still need to do, particularly in terms of culture, to try and address or try and support more innovation to make it through to business as usual? Yeah, I, I, look, it's, it, we're on a journey. I think, you know, 10 years ago, 
startups trying to get in the door, you know, it, was, it wasn't pretty, you know. Some guys say there's a line of sort of body bags outside of skeletons of startups, you know, getting the slow no, they never, they're knocking on the door. And actually the utilities were too polite to say no. So they still think, and then they run, you know, a, 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 you know six months in the life of a startup is an eternity. Six months in the life of a, a distribution company is like, oh, that's pretty snappy, you know. So, you know, we, we live in different, you know, we're, we're on different lanes of the motorway. But, you know, uh, but I think that's changing. And I think now because we all, we're in a race against time, you know, uh, it's the race now to net zero. So we're all in this together. So, and we need the fast guys. And so we're reaching out to them. So I think that paradigm is changing. And the, the whole mechanism, it used to be, you know, try and innovate in large companies, even large OEMs, they struggle. And if you can look at the number of, of startups now, the way people are monetizing their ideas is they do a startup. And, and they'll eventually get sold to a big company. But if you want to innovate faster, you've got to grab them at the startup level. And there's a whole ecosystem. It started in Silicon Valley, but it's in Europe now. It's in London, big time for Europe. Uh, so everybody has access to, to those stepping stones, starting with Innovate UK. So the, the funding is there, the, the regime from, I have a good idea, it's lab tested, I need a, I need a, I need a, I need a place to field test it, I do my pilot, I get through. I think everybody is starting to get that and it works really well. And, and that is the route, if you look at, um, it, it, Bloomberg said earlier, in the, I think it was in February this year, they reported that you know, the, the number of billion dollar companies for the first time in, in the history, I mean, the, 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 the term unicorn, which used to be like a, a, you know, a horse with a kind of a funny thing on his head, uh, you know, is, 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 is relatively new for the billion dollar companies. It was, I think it was coined in like 2013, but already, you know, that, because they were so rare. Last year, there was more than one unicorn every day produced. So, and, and we can see the number of Airbnbs, Ubers that are coming out of the woodwork. And they're, you know, they're coming into our sector, even if they're 100, 200 million, they're still chunky companies. And suddenly startups of two years ago are now companies that we can work with. There's like uh, Green, uh, Greencom Networks got acquired there recently. GridX last year were acquired by Eon, for example. Like these companies are growing fast. The key, key thing here is on, on that journey, if there are exits for these companies, investors get really interested. Because if they can see this is a hot sector and these companies are getting acquired, investors get a return on their money. And let's face it, that's what they want. So more, if they can see more of these exits happening in the sector, they, they get more involved in the earlier funding stages of the startups. It's a key measure of a functioning marketplace, isn't it, that venture capital wants to get involved. And I think if we're seeing, as you're talking about these unicorns really coming to the fore, it's a sign that we're starting to see that, that, that operational market. What's really important for me is we try to de develop how SIF can support network innovation. It's really being aware of what is happening and focusing on those barriers that remain and, and finding the solutions to help, the, to help the whole ecosystem benefit from this. Yeah, and look, money can travel to different sectors. You know, there's hot sectors and there's cool sectors. You know, people want to invest in Porsche or whatever. That's all fine and dandy. But actually, the, the, the professional investors, the institutional investors, <coughs> they just want to get their money back and they want to be pretty sure. It's and they're looking at the sex thing. Okay, uh, actually, electricity and energy is one of the sectors touches 
it touches everybody. Everybody has, everybody needs energy to drive their business. So, and now we all have to decarbonize. So every business needs to decarbonize. So every business needs to become energy efficient. So this whole energy sector is now reaching out. It's a bit like software, it touches all sectors. So suddenly the, the amount of cash being mobilized into the energy sector is, is, is quadrupling, you know, and, and, and the, the excitement factor is, is, has picked up because, you know, elevated by the situation in Europe at the moment, obviously suddenly go green, uh, you know, there's no premium to go green. It's actually, it's solving the trilemma. It's actually more economic to go green. You're more sustainable, you're saving the planet and you're going to make some money. Really appreciated your insights there. Thanks for taking the time uh, and spending it with me on this uh, Bright Spark podcast. Great to hear from ESB's John McKiernan there. He set out really nicely what's driving the need for new solutions in energy systems and how there are huge opportunities for innovative small companies in this space. So this is one of those classic collaboration dilemmas, very much a tortoise and hare type partnership or a David and Goliath, if you will, where we've got these huge big organisations in the shape of networks and utilities, which can have in excess of 10,000 staff and these lightning fast startups and SMEs who like to move quickly and break things. So really, we are... I suppose almost like some kind of bizarre network innovation wedding planner where we're trying to bring together these two interested parties, help them to find common ground and work together to ultimately deliver some innovations that maybe neither of them thought were possible. I think I think that's spot on. One of my observations in any commercialization journey is that the business drivers for every party in that innovation are different. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that each party understands what everyone else's business drivers are. And there has to be compromise. You cannot get commercialized innovation without being aware and accepting of what everyone's trying to achieve. Yeah, completely agree with that. And Matt, those challenges that we've just been discussing were something that came out of one of the sessions that we held at the Energy Innovation Summit. The mural we were looking at that you heard John talk about was created by two artists to show the themes coming out of the commercialization workshop. There were loads of network companies and innovators there, so we asked them to explore in depth some of the commercialization opportunities and barriers. If you want to read what they said, I wrote it up in a blog post where you can also see the mural image. We've put the link in the notes to this episode of BrightSpark. You're listening to the BrightSpark podcast from Innovate UK. To find out more about our work delivering the Ofgem Strategic Innovation Fund, head online to ofgem.gov.uk forward slash SIF. That link is in the show notes, the description that accompanies this episode in your podcast player. There are plenty of innovators and entrepreneurs already succeeding in this space and making great progress, changing the landscape of energy distribution. Here's one of those right now. I'm Jojo Hubbard. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Electron, and we build software for uh, energy and flexibility marketplaces. Jojo. It's really nice to meet you. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. We're stood in front of your stall for your company, Electron. Why don't you tell us a bit about it? We essentially build software that we provide in terms of like a marketplace as a service that lets a network operator operating as a DSO pay local generators or local flexibility to turn up or down at the right time and the right place in order to ease congestion on on, uh, grids. 
And what I think is quite unique about what we do is we also enable um, generators, let's say, who have been curtailed due to lack of network capacity to buy their way back online, or electric vehicle charging stations who want to charge more cars than they have network rights to, to buy more buy more access to network by paying other people to use less power at that particular time in that particular location. So it's all around using power at the right time in the right location, right down into the distribution grid, because essentially the renewable transition is about uh, everyone uh, is using more and more kind of grid at the local level, but they don't need to use it at exactly the same time, at exactly the same place. And so let's use it more efficiently. So this is a real sweet spot area just now for our networks. It's pretty sexy. Must have been easy for you to make this business a reality then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's been quite a journey and as you can imagine, the kind of market's changed quite a lot in the last six years since we started. But I think in this space, you know, there's a lot of early access to innovation funds to try out a bunch of different models and say, how does it work in UK? How does it work in Canada? We did South Korea, we did Switzerland, we did uh, California. But it took quite a long time to work out what the repeatable kind of technology platform or back-end looked that served all of those different locations, all those different market types. And so that for us really has been the commercialization journey. And we're finally at a place today where we're selling software as a service and people are using things we've already built instead of doing it completely bespoke every time. That's really interesting. Thanks, Jojo. One of the words you used there that I, I'm really keen to understand more on is, is about your offering being repeatable. Because for a company to be successful at scale, you have to have something that is repeatable. Can you talk a bit more about how you've how you came to that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we did it. We made quite a lot of the hard trade-offs early on. So we started from the fact that it had to work in different countries. It had to work in different levels of network, and it had to work for different types of flexibility products. I talked about like things DSOs are buying. That's one person buying from many people, and then things that wind farms are buying. That's kind of many to many markets. Like like. So we started with that as our kind of problem statement. The way we learned of it worked is like, it was learning by doing, and there was no other way to do it. And I, I think that's, that's one of the real kind of challenges and exciting things about this space. The next big challenge for us was then teaching, you know, uh, uh, working with customers who are used to doing this completely bespoke thing to explain what the benefit is of doing something that's already been proven, that already works. And I think we're only just at the very beginning of that transformation from DIY with a consultant to buying SaaS. How do you make that first contact with the network? How do you start interacting with them to really understand what their their problem is yeah. to help them, well, firstly for you to build what a solution might be and to help them understand how this can, can solve their problem? In the network space, I'd say the problems are kind of transparent. I mean, like, you know, you can come to a conference like this and you can hear all sorts of problems. You can read any of the kind of position papers or submission. Like, there, there's so much information about what the problem is. I think when you actually start working on building a market platform, you really learn what the problem is. Like the, like the, the problem we're solving isn't that you know, we need flexibility, it's that the way they're getting flexibility right now is like one you know, five-year bilateral contact, like contracts, and what they really need is a slightly more dynamic way of uh, entering and leaving uh, constraints because that's going to get liquidity into the market. That's going to make a battery operator decide to provide a service, whereas the battery operator doesn't want to sign up for five years. So the problem evolves as you actually do the project. But I think it's quite easy in this space just to come to a conference like this or read some papers and hear about the vast amounts of transformation that have to happen. It's a recurring theme I've heard in yeah. the discussions I've had over the last couple of days that 
having that face-to-face interface is a real inroad to trying to understand those problems and it's something that we can't necessarily replicate remotely. Something I'm really keen to understand is how you deal with competition. So it's a competitive market out there. There's a lot of innovators trying to innovate around flexibility, but you seem to be able to stay ahead of that curve and ahead of the competition. What's your what's your secret sauce? <laughs> I can't tell you that. Um, no, I, th- I think it is... I mean, it's not really how we think at the moment. It's not kind of competition, it's growth mindset. Like, what we're doing in the kind of distribution level flexibility markets, it's, it's such early days. Like, and UK is moving ahead of Europe, ahead of North America, and they're going to catch up. But I think at the moment it's more a sense of like getting people to understand that you don't just have to turn off a wind farm. You can do demand turn up. You can do like you can turn like get a wind farm to pay a diesel like generation thing to, to, to turn down. So it's more of an education thing. I don't think we're in a space yet where the market's saturated and we're trying to win a contract from X, Y, or Z play. I think we're kind of communally in a in a in a, in a, in a kind of proposition communication thing. I, I think one of the problems we had is we didn't start from here's a you know, flat, static procurement platform you can have tomorrow. We, just, we started saying we need to have something repeatable, we need to have something scalable, some continuous scalable trading platform. And that takes two years to build something like that. And you're kind of building it while you're doing these, these projects. I, I, think, I think we got quite good at saying, here's the end state, here's what we can do today. And then, like we talked about this earlier, like innovation in this space is a team sport. Like we know all the people who are buying who are selling like we know what their problems are we speak to them we can you know and other stakeholders in this space you know like 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 yourselves like Offgem, like bays like it it's it, it's not you can't go into a dark room and build the best software ever in your garage and then like you know raise 50 million pounds from a vc and, and be everywhere like in this space like innovation's a team sport you do it by projects you do it by solving problems for individuals i think no, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I'm keen to ask you a direct question on was you talked about there's a need for uh, to educate. Yeah. Who do you need to educate? And do you see that that breakage there, if you like, as, as one of the key barriers to commercialization for companies at your stage of development? Yeah, I mean, who do you need to educate? Every, like, top down everyone. You know, it's, it's regulators, it's, it, it's, it's kind of DSOs, it's ESOs, and they're educating us. You know, it's, it's, it's traders, like, it, it, it's a two-way education thing. I think, I think probably the, but to try and be, like, pithier, like, you have to tell someone why what you're doing matters to them, because there's so much noise in this space right now. So I think the very, very first thing is, like, is, is that understanding, like, here's the bit, here's the problem you care about most, and here's the bit of it that I solve. So here's why, here's why I'm worth your time. I think it's that. It's business plan 101, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. What is it that's going to make you happier? And yeah. here, here is a solution for it. Yeah. yeah. No, really useful. What's next for your business? Oh, gosh. Well, we are, we're scaling now. Essentially, we, we've got a repeatable SaaS platform. We're beginning to you know, introduce a couple of interesting flexibility markets. We, we really, really want to kind of set a standard for this dynamic, continuous kind of network capacity optimization uh, functions. So... We see us in a couple more locations in the UK soon, I hope, but we, we want to take this to North America, we want to take this to Europe. I think the UK's got a real opportunity right now to like, export our first mover kind of regulatory advantage in pushing local energy and flexibility markets into these other countries that are similarly at 40% wind and solar today and wanting to get to 80%. It's a really exciting time then. You've, you've, yeah. you've managed to go through that first hurdle of commercialization from, from the startup to a commercial product. Zero to one. Zero to one. <laughs> Now you're on that scale up 
process. Yeah. Do you see barriers that are similar to barriers you've already faced or are there new barriers? I think that the barriers are probably substantially similar on a kind of macro level, but the story around the barriers changes all the time, right? Like, we've kind of turned the now more than ever story for the last six years, you know, when we first started, it was like now more than ever because you've got all these renewables connecting to the grid. And then we're like, now more than ever because we're committed to net zero. And like like the, the recent gas crisis, that's like a now more than ever, more than anything else, because the thing that we balance the grid with today is gas, you know, and the thing we've got to balance the grid with in a renewable world is is is, is flexibility and, and clean flexibility, you know, like demand side flexibility, for example, batteries, and but also like electric vehicles and storage. So like, I think, Everyone thought gas was a transition tool for longer and now people realize we need flexibility faster. So like we're telling the now more than ever story in a different way, you know, and there's more of a reason for someone to provide flexibility services if you're saving 600 pounds a megawatt hour instead of 60 pounds a megawatt hour at wholesale. So I think, I think the, the end goal has always been the same because we know about the net zero transformation. The, the story we're telling or the kind of key motivating factors changed. And so I think for us the challenge is just keeping educating people about why this is still the thing that's solving the biggest problem and why it's still got to be now. No, that's a really good overview. Um, and, and I want to thank you for taking the time to, to, to tell us about your company on this episode of BrightSpark. Before I finish, if you were to give one piece of advice to a startup now, what would that be? Hmm. I think it's, I, there's a lot of opportunity right now in our space to do innovation by integration. There are so many different you know, people who'll tell you that their hardware is better than anyone else or their, you know, their tech's better than else or their visibility, but I think a lot of the money left on the table in the clean tech space right now is just because of like the inefficiencies of this person not talking to this person. So I think for me the most exciting position at the moment is that integration of all the different flexibility service providers, renewable developers, like all these different technologies, the, the emerging DSO, TSO, ESO, FSO. So it's that, I think it's focused on integration on the kind of platforms that bring all this noise together and that optimize network capacity and renewable generation. Super. Thanks very much, Jojo. It's just great to get that first-hand insight from a company like Electron, seeing them on their journey, growing, scaling, following this path to commercialization. There's no doubt that support is out there. The CIF, of course, is here to encourage and reward innovation and support that transition to business as usual. Another organisation that helps brilliantly is the Energy Systems Catapult. I'm Eric Appleton, I'm an incubation manager at the Energy Systems Catapult. My role is to help innovative companies to grow their businesses, to, to help them commercialise. I'm really interested to speak to you, Eric, about the role of commercialisation as we try to support network innovation. I was fortunate enough to be an observer um, in one of your incubator sessions for companies that have got real potential in this space. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the challenges you see for, for early stage innovations as they try to find a market and to commercialise their offering. Yeah, so I think, um, I think there's no end of really good technology innovation out there. What a lot of innovators struggle with is, is how to make a business out of that. And so what we try to do through our programs is to, to bring the sort of commercialization element um, to the fore. So not just look at how they need to progress their technology, that's all really important, uh, but how are they actually gonna to get to market? You know, and what was observed in the last few years is that they need help articulating their proposition. So we do a lot of work around what is the value proposition to the end customer? What problem are you solving? What need is it serving? And then what's the underpinning business model? And there's a few organizations that do similar things to that. Then we take it kind of a step further 
you start to look at you know other elements about their their funding needs about the, the team have they got the right people you know for the stage that they're at but also how they're going to get to market so what what are the route to market partnerships that they're going to need how does a value chain kind of work within the sector that they're looking at and which are they going to be the segments that are going to be most um, interested in their proposition now so not just in five years time when regulation changes and, and the policy landscape is, is receptive but they need they need to get traction now so so we do a lot of work around route to market partnerships segmentation so they can really understand who to target you know with the limited time and money that they've got so that it can be successful and it's about shifting the mindset of innovators so eventually they have to become business owners, not innovation owners. Mm. And that isn't an easy thing to do. How do you go about trying to help people understand that there's more to their business than just their innovation? Um, I mean, it's a good point you make. And I think there's some statistics somewhere about, you know, 80% or something of founding um, CEOs don't actually go on to take the business forward into full commercialization because it's a different type of um, person uh, and skill set that's needed to, to scale a business from... You know, to the one that kind of comes up with the idea and, and gets it initially off the ground. So I think that's where we talk about a lot about the team and what sort of skills they might might need and where the gaps are. So you can kind of do, a, you know, depending on what stage they're at. So we, we look at uh, the innovation journey and we've got this framework called the innovation journey framework and starts with ideation, uh, then goes through a discovery stage and then into incubation and, and scale up. So depending on the stage that you're at, you're going to need different skill sets. And so we've come up with kind of that, how to map that out and see, well, where they are, where are they in terms of maturity? You know, and at any given point, they might be more technically mature than they are from a team or a commercial perspective. Eric, it's been really interesting hearing you talk about the challenges that innovators face in commercialization. Of course, they're only one party when it comes to commercializing an innovation. There's a customer as well. And in the, in the network innovation space, that typically is the DNOs. What are some of the real barriers or challenges that DNOs face when trying to deal with innovation and bring some of those technologies on board? It's a good question. Uh, I think there's, there's, there's you know, a raft of innovation projects and opportunities that innovators can get involved in uh, and they get funding for that. But then making that jump from an innovation project to being business as usual is where there's a, there's a huge gap, whether it comes down to the you know, the procurement, um, you know, steps you have to go through and, and the systems you have to be registered with, those are big barriers for, for small companies. Um, having the, the working capital, the balance sheet that is maybe required to participate means that ultimately they're forced down a route of partnering with larger companies, more established companies, and ultimately, you know, potentially need to sell out their company to those organisations just to commercialise their, uh, their technology. Yeah, it's an issue that I think we, we're starting to notice as well. So the, the industry is governed by the utilities contract regulation. And we've heard two sides of that story. So one is that procurement works because it allows for networks to understand what the most up-to-date technology is to make sure that if they're procuring something, they get the right offering at the right price and that they stay on the right side of regulation. The flip is that networks can work with SMEs over a number of years, build strong relationships and ultimately, though, after a pilot has proven that something will work, they have to go to open tender. And that SME might not be successful in that. We see that as a, as a challenge for SMEs wanting to enter the sector. Um, I don't think I've seen a solution yet. Maybe we need some innovative solutions around procurement framework. So from a commercial perspective, from a contracting point of view, making it less less of a barrier for SMEs to work with. You know, procurement terms, you know, payment terms, for example. I've, I've seen innovators... You know, in contracts with large um, network operators, 
they might be on 90 day, 120 day payment terms. For an SME, you know, with limited cash flow, that can kill the company. So I think we need to see contracts that are appropriate for the size of organization that they're dealing with, that makes it easier to do business and removes that friction. Oh. Eric, that, that buzzer signifies that there's been uh, another good idea over another stall, but it also signifies the end of our time. So I'd really like to thank you, Eric, for taking the time and joining us on this episode of BrightSpark. Thank pleasure. you. Pleasure. Thank you very much. What a great chat then with the Energy Systems Catapults, Eric Appleton. Eric talked about their innovation journey framework. It's very similar to our own giant leap together model of challenges, ideation, incubation and acceleration. There are some real similarities there and definitely some real synergies. I think from our perspective, an area where we get involved much earlier is in the challenge setting. We have a real role to play in understanding what the key challenges are for our energy networks and helping to develop what our next round of challenges looks like based on those. And that is really how we will work together to bring these new ideas to commercial reality and help the companies to grow and flourish and be part of driving us towards the net zero goal. It's also how we hope the UK can achieve that aspiration of becoming the Silicon Valley of energy. So listen, thanks so much, Paul. You've been an excellent co-host. No problem. Nice to be a part of it. And thanks for having me. You have been listening to the Bright Spark podcast. Remember, this is episode six. So if you're discovering us for the first time, go to whatever you listen to podcasts on and search Bright Spark to find the previous five episodes. There is also a link in the episode description. To find out more about the Strategic Innovation Fund, find us at offgem.gov.uk forward slash SIF. BrightSpark is a bespoken media production for Innovate UK. Thanks for being with us. See you next time.